Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. I think that women, whether they're like less inclined to be iconoclastic, I think that we pay a steeper price for doing it. Yes, yes. Thank you for saying this, Kat. That is that is a very good point. And I think this actually does kind of converge with something we talk about a lot on the podcast, but like the whole thing of the supposed 53% of white women voting for Trump, the debunked stat about from 2016 that everybody kind of based all of their hot takes on and kind of continues to this idea that any white women doing something annoying or, you know, disfavored um, by the speaker, it's like worse than if white men have done it because as if there is some kind of default status of any woman that is just like sort of pure, progressive, perfect, correct views on everything. It's, yes, the whole like being put on a pedestal so you have much further to fall. Exactly. Welcome to The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Happy New Year! The podcast is back from its little hiatus. So thank you for your patience. I think it's worth the wait because I'm kicking off the return with two guests. They are Kat Rosenfield and Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. Together, they are the hosts of Feminine Chaos, a podcast that began on the bloggingheads.tv platform in 2018, but that they have recently taken independent. On the show, they discuss a range of issues, many of them women's issues as they play out on social media and through the prism of the current culture wars. They are both journalists and authors. Phoebe writes for publications including The Globe and Mail and The Washington Post, and she is the author of the 2017 book, The Perils of Privilege. Kat is a culture writer and a novelist, and her next book, No One Will Miss Her, will be published by William Morrow in 2021. This is just a really fun conversation. So instead of uh, summarizing it for you, I'll just get right to it. Kat and Phoebe, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thanks for, Thanks having, for us. having us. Oh, wow. We said that in unison. <laughs> I, I love it. It's safe to say, I guess, that 
we're gathered here today, at least in part, because we all seem to have wandered into this space, sadly, for lack of a better word. Are you tired of calling this the space that's sometimes called heterodox thought or that contains a lot of liberals, left-leading people who've become frustrated by the way some of the more fringe elements of the left have made their way into mainstream media and culture. You guys started the Feminine Chaos podcast in 2018, right? About exactly a little over two years ago as a way of critiquing some of the hypocrisies of contemporary feminism or sort of the dissecting some of the complexities. So I thought we could start by having each of you talk about your relationship to feminism and politics more broadly, uh, growing up and as younger women and and what you when you started to notice uh, things change. So Kat, do you want to take that on first? Sure. Um, that's, that's like a lot to talk about. Um, so but it's all it's all we talk about. So I figured it was <laughs> I figured that's a softball, really. It's I mean, true. Yeah. You know, I'm just trying, I'm thinking about how to organize it. Well, you know, as far as my relationship to feminism, I was raised by a very uh, hardcore second wave feminist mom, um, who was also a housewife. So sort of no tension between these two things, you know, it was, it was an early <laughs> lesson in the fact that people could contain multitudes. And um, yeah, you know, I, I sort of was always a very liberal, I guess what we would now call classically liberal, committed to free expression, committed to free speech, you know, uh, freedom in the arts growing up. And, you know, that was in like the 90s when I was a teenager, um, that was a feminist position to take and a liberal position to take. You know, there was always this sort of activity coming from the conservative side of things, trying to silence the voices of, of subversive people and subversive women. And then what I, yeah, what I noticed as I um, became a grown up and particularly um, within the past, I want to say 15 years or so. Um, that and how old are you? I'm just going to have to ask because I'm, it's my, I'm 30, due, my due diligence. <laughs> I'm 38. Okay. So yeah, you know, I would say after 2010, probably, um, you know, most specifically, there started to be this shift. And, um, you know, what I found was that my views hadn't changed, my values hadn't changed, I was still as committed to, you know, to free speech and free expression and sort of an empowered feminism as ever. But the landscape around me had shifted so that in many ways, these were no longer necessarily um, values held by the left at large. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's funny, Phoebe and I, I, I don't know, I, I won't speak for her, she can, you know, speak to this herself. But when we um, started this podcast, it was almost by accident, just because we were constantly talking about this stuff on Twitter. And um, I think it was Arya Cohen Wade, who ended up being our producer at Blogging Heads, said, you know, you should talk about this on a podcast. And um, it seemed like a good opportunity to just have a conversation, you know, about stuff that, that yeah, you know, was, was becoming sort of unpopular or a little fraught to talk about. Yeah. So Phoebe, I saw a tweet from you recently that surprised me. You referred to having gone to University of Chicago as an mm -hmm. undergraduate and being a kind of libertarian or <laughs> even neocon at that time. Um, oh, yeah. Would you, would you care to elaborate on sure, that? Sure, <laughs> sure. So 
There is in the kind of heterodox space, this really sort of like classic at this point narrative of I was on the left and then I was whatever pilled and now I see the Mm. light and I'm maybe a little bit on the left, but I'm, or I don't take labels or maybe I'm on the right, whatever. For me, it's very different from this because I think I've just always had kind of weird views. And if anything, my overall politics have moved to the left over the years. But yeah, I don't have any of, and I also, I don't really have any origin story of having been canceled or anything exciting like that. Um, I think I managed to be enough under the radar that this is just unlikely. But yeah, yeah, in college, I definitely, so I grew up in New York City. I'm I'm 37 now. um, But what's relevant for this part of the story is that I was 18 and about to start college in September uh, 2001. So Mm -hmm. I was in Manhattan, you know, for all of this. And it really, it made a big impact on me. And I was very young, you know, and I just thought, okay, you know, I was, I liked Giuliani, you know, and like, I saw some tweet, I think, um, possibly from somebody from Chapo Trap House earlier today that was retweeted into my timeline. There was something like, lol, that anybody ever didn't hate Giuliani. It's like, well, okay, lol, I was 18. And, you know, I was in my 20s. Living in New York City, I mean, yeah. he really made life um, a lot uh, easier for white chicks like me during that during that time. So <laughs> I, I hear you. You know, I was informed very much by that, but also by so when I started at the University of Chicago, I was very, I guess, as most college freshmen are, you know, provincial and had really only experience of um, my, you know, New York City immediate surroundings. And it was very weird for me. And this is going to seem ridiculous when you think that it was the University of Chicago, but I felt very weird to be Jewish and like from New York. And I know there were plenty of (laughs) New York Jews at the University of Chicago as things go. But for me, it was like the whole anticipation. I read way too much Philip Roth, okay, (laughs) as a teenager. Impossible. No such thing. No, I mean, I'm glad I read all the Philip Roth, but I wasn't quite old enough to get, you know, nuance or whatever. And I thought, I'm going to get to the University of Chicago and all of the other students, now, please do not laugh, but I thought all of the women would look like Claudia Schiffer. (laughs) <laughs> at the university because it was the midwest and what did i know and i was like i was rhoda morgenstern and everybody else was going to be claudia schiffer wow that's the best not- advertisement for university of chicago they're going to become a sponsor of this podcast after that statement so then that did not happen but what did end up happening was that i just sort of because it, it is in the midwest you know ended up kind of in a social circle not for whatever reason i didn't wind up hanging out with the kids from New York, I did end up hanging out with kids from near to Chicago, just and from around the Midwest. And it was weird um, in my social circles to be a New York Jew. And I think my views on Israel, which I now know to be pretty darn boring, made me think that I was probably like, you know, whatever, like the furthest right Zionist ever to exist, which Apparently, if you also think there should be a Palestinian state and are concerned with Palestinians' rights, you're not. So, oh, well. But yeah, I just, I basically, a lot of like very subjective things happened in my life to make me think I was more conservative than I was, I guess. And then in terms of the move to the left, I don't really, it's not so much that my views on specific issues have really changed. It's more that ones where I didn't really have any thoughts before have become a little bit more clear. So 
the obvious one for me, um, I live in Canada now, just life circumstances. I'm in Canada and universal healthcare is good, is good stuff. Um, and yeah, basically that's really, um, a big one. And also, yeah, I have, um, pretty strong as many people on Twitter who've yelled at me, no views about, uh, gun control. So yeah, I guess I am a bit all over the place in that regard, but yeah. Um, could I address the feminism thing a little though? Yes. I was just going to ask you to address that. I'm just going to hold forth a little longer. (laughs) Um, yeah. So I also don't have like a real sort of shift, although I do have some similar background too, and thoughts like what Kat was saying about sort of the, the containing of multitudes. I saw a lot of the kind of like, I guess what I would call trappings feminism of people who are like making a big deal, women who are making a big deal about how they didn't change their name when they got married or they didn't wear a white dress Mm. or whatever and basing their feminism around things like that. So that has always kind of put me off. You mean when you were growing up or Um, more recently? Not when I was growing up, but more, but before, so like there's a whole other world now of straight women who identify as neither straight nor women, which is another whole question. Before there was that kind of cultural space, there was a cultural space of straight women who definitely were straight women, according to themselves, but I'm not really phrasing any of this right. Of straight women who just were like very performatively ambivalent about having a male partner and all of this. And that Mm. was the feminism. And that to me, it just seemed like if you genuinely do not feel that you are a woman, if you genuinely do not like men only or at all, fine. But just this whole sort of performative, um, I'm not like those other girls thing has something that's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And that's so interesting. I'm trying to get a sense of a timeline on this. Like you were noticing that like in the 2000s when you were Mm, like- Yeah. So I wrote about it for The Atlantic in 2013, I think, or something like that. But I had been blogging about this for years and I started my blog and it's called, not that I've updated it recently, What Would Phoebe Do? And I started that in 2004. So I was still an undergrad. Okay. And so how did you two come together uh, with with the podcast? Did you know each other ahead of time? Were you readers of each other's work? We've never actually met. Um, <laughs> no, we were supposed to. What? We were we supposed, supposed to. to. Wait, the wait, 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 wait. To date, you, you guys have never met in person? We've never met in person. Oh, my no. gosh. People always find that very weird. And I, I also find it weird. We were supposed to meet in the spring and then... Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I grew up in upstate New York in a really like rural um, small town that, you know, fun fact, went for Trump in, you know, the past two elections. So, um, you know, I'm nowhere near as cosmopolitan or as educated as Phoebe. And um, I'm just trying to think, you know, when it is that we ended up coming into each other's orbit. I think it was on Twitter. I think this is actually one of the few good things that has ever happened on Twitter. That's right. <laughs> the only good thing, really. It's the rest. No. Shut, they should have shut it down right after it that. It should just be us. Kat and, Kat and I can just like run Twitter. <laughs> yes. So, okay, Shouting in so, the empty room. Mm-hmm. Heaven and Chaos was, it has been on bloggingheads.tv, which is a platform, a video blogging platform that started like a really long time ago. I think it started in 2005. And so you've been on it for the last couple of years. 
so did Aria Cohen Wade, who's the the editor of of Blogging Heads, did he come to you? Yeah, that's what Kat just said. He came to you and said, "Do you want to do this?" And like, so how did you conceive it? And I guess you should also talk about where the feminine chaos name comes from. <laughs> that will require diving. That will require dropping yet another name. That will Ooh, derail say the, say the everyone's word. listenership uh, going forward in this conversation. Um. Yeah, I mean, I could. I don't really remember much about the origin story of our podcast. I know that like people on Twitter was, were saying we should have one, but yeah, people and- wanted us to talk about something specific. So the very first blogging heads that Phoebe and I did together was I don't even remember what the topic was, and now it's you know I can't Google in real time to find it. Um, but it was something that we were sort of spitballing about on Twitter, and people started saying you should do a podcast about this. And then Aria reached out and said, why don't you have a conversation about this on Blogging Heads? And um, he, you know, we were we were such babes in the woods, you know, I didn't even know what Zoom was. And he set it up. Um, oh, you know, neither did for, I. Yeah. Yeah. So he like, he like hosted it, you know, he, he, he brought us into the into the meeting and then he disappeared and we just talked to each other. I was so surprised. I remember that time that like that he wasn't going to participate in the conversation. Um, he just gave us like this little room to, to chat in and then disappeared. So that was fun. Oh, no. Do you remember what you talked about? Do you remember what the issue was? I can mute myself and take a look. Yeah. Do you go you explain about feminine chaos the yes, title and i'm gonna figure about, this out oh, Phoebe, you're just dodging out of the conversation while we talk about uh you know yep, who that's right i do so, okay go ahead Karen. here's yes. what's funny i'm trying to think you know how how much honestly there was an awareness of jordan peterson as an entity um obviously you know he he's very big uh, as I now understand on these, and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this name. I always call it Jungian, and I guess that's not how you pronounce it. But oh, Jungian. Jungian. No. Oh, beg pardon. No, <laughs> okay. no. I, I'm not, I only I'm not know this I'm such a Jordan Peterson acolyte, as you know. Ah, yeah. yes, no. yeah. So you know, um, I'm defending myself from accusations of defending him. And, and so did, <laughs> I learned how to pronounce it Jungian. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, I've, I've learned to pronounce it today. So he, I guess he's, um, you know, into these Jungian archetypes. And there's this uh, whole concept of like, whether the ordered masculine versus the chaotic feminine. Um, and so when we were spitballing back and forth, that was, I mean, if nothing else, it was fun to say, you know, feminine chaos, and it evoked, you know, something kind of, you know, specific, not necessarily feminist, but feminine. And also it encompassed the the way that we sort of um, bounce around on topics that are sort of not, there's no real unifying principle to them, except that pretty much everything we talk about is tangentially related in some way to women or women's issues or a thing that a woman did. Um, so, you know, it was mostly that we, we liked the sound of it. And we have Jordan Peterson, I guess, to thank for the fact that the idea of feminine chaos was sort of in the ether 
Um, mm-hmm. I have to say that it's led to a lot of confusion over the years as people think that we're either specifically making fun of him or that we're like secret Peterson acolytes, neither of which mm. is the case. I don't think that we think about Jordan Peterson anywhere near as much as people think that we do. Oh, no, we're constantly, yes. constantly about him. I found it. I found it. Okay. Sorry. Yes, it was what, in, what was the topic? Well, I see a still, which has my dog in it, um, and it was posted on April 5th, 2018. And we talked about Sherman, Alexi, and Children's Publishing's Me Too moment. We talked about consent. We talked about the riskiness of romance for women. And we talked about uh, skincare. (laughs) That sounds so quaint now. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't talk at all about coronavirus. You know, we weren't hip to... Or critical race theory. Well, that ended up being actually our first, I think, possibly the first feminine chaos ended up being about uh, white fragility or one of the early ones, maybe. Maybe not the very first, but one of the first. We hated white fragility before it was cool to hate white fragility. Oh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. let's let's let the record show. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. So you were onto it. Had you read it? Why were you even familiar with White Fragility? Oh, God, it was something ago? in The New Yorker, right? There was yeah, a New Yorker. Katie Waldman or was it Amanda Hess? No, it was Katie Waldman. Katie Waldman, okay. Um, had written this glowing review of of the book in The New wow. Yorker. And it was such a, I mean, God, that, that review is just such an artifact of a moment. You know, this white woman reviewer reviewing the anti-racist book by a white woman grifter um you know it like just just fawning all over it and it was so i mean it caught both of our attention at the time i think maybe for different reasons but the thing that i remember most is that we talked about it in in critical terms you know on the podcast and were immediately inundated with a slew of again white women commenters telling us that because we were critical and skeptical of this book, that meant that we were exactly the kind of white women who really <laughs> needed to read it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how yeah. things work, right? You can't argue with a conspiracy theorist because you're part of the conspiracy. I think our issue with it had been really just that there. it seemed as if uh, Robin D'Angelo was like, she had all these notions about how white people, especially white liberals, perhaps, and this kind of gets to another one of our themes, um, especially white women are, but like as if she was somehow magically removed from that herself, like all these inherent biases and all of this, like, except if you happen to be personally Robin D'Angelo, in which case, I guess it's fine. Um, So that was a lot of it. And then that in turn, I think, So even though this wasn't really specifically a feminism topic, it kind of ended up becoming one because then soon enough, there would be the whole Karen discourse, um, which Kat and I have both written about, that just kind of exploded this pre-existing idea that women are either the victims of Me Too and very tragic, or if the women are white or privileged in some other way then in fact, women are worse than men, the worst of all white ladies ruining everything, white feminists of whom Ivanka Trump is, of course, the prime example. Mm -hmm. 
So Phoebe, you had a book come out in 2017, The Perils of Privilege, Why Injustice Can't Be Solved by Accusing Others of Advantage. Needless to say, you are ahead of your time. I feel like more people would have bought it if it had come out later, but that's a that's just a publishing lament. Um, well, what was the privilege discourse like when you were conceiving that book and writing it? And did you ever imagine it would get to the point where it is now? No. So this is, um, I can actually answer this by my standards pretty succinctly. When I wrote this book and this, like I'd really started writing about these ideas more like around the recession, I was thinking of the privilege discourse that was not about specific subsets of privilege, but more about your privilege is showing clearly you've never worked in food service. Clearly you have no idea what it's like to ever have a real problem, that kind of discourse, right? Which would be on feminist blogs, but it would also just be in like newspaper comments. And it was very much very online. And I was writing about very online at a time when that was still like you had to justify it. And when you could still get a book review that would be like, this talks about online. What about the real world? Anyway. Mm -hmm. um, But then when I wrote it and people were responding to it, it was a lot of she, this lady doesn't think white privilege is real. And it's like, it was not specifically about privilege in an assume. It wasn't, I didn't assume I was talking specifically about race. I talk a bit about race, but it's not about, um, and I do think for what it's worth that white privilege is real. What I w- was saying is that I don't think privilege is a useful frame for talking about injustice. But there was just suddenly this sort of, and this was bef- obviously in terms of the timeline since my book came out in 2017, this was before like summer 2020. There was just this assumption that the word privilege would be about race And by the time the book was getting reviewed, it was kind of like, well, surely that's what this would be about, even though it wasn't really. So do you, you, you are moving the podcast away from blogging heads and it's going to be its own entity and it's going to be audio only. I want to talk about what made you want to make the change, but I'm curious, like the, the evolving, the way a lot of these subjects have evolved over the last couple of years, has that played a role in your deciding to kind of change things up or like, is it just, is it really just sort of a logistical uh, transformation? Gosh, I mean, I will. I mean, except that I, I'm not, I don't know how satisfactory an answer this is going to be. So Phoebe, maybe you want to yes and me or, you know, something after this. Um, but, you know, I think it is mainly logistical, you know, just that. Yes, and. <laughs> that, you know, that there's, there is a lot to talk about. And what we want is to be able to, you know, record more, um, to talk more, and ideally, you know, to like, be compensated more for our efforts on this front Hmm. and um it's just it's a lot easier to get basically get on the phone um than to have to you know do a video zoom call where you have to look presentable and you have to have your lighting and you know you have to be prepared for (laughs) not everyone on blogging heads holds them worries as much about that though if you've noticed there's there's a different (laughs) variety of standards i know uh, i mean i've I've spent many an afternoon looking up glenn lowry's nose and just being like wow you know If only I could be so relaxed about video casting. Or it's like people's backgrounds. You both, um, I mean, in addition to always looking um, spectacular, both of you, you have very nice backgrounds. So I'm surprised well, Room you. Raider has not um, bestowed honors on you yet. There's, I guess there's always time. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, what Kat said, I think is right. Yeah, I mean, I think Blogging Heads was fun in terms of both just getting us a platform and 
kind of putting us into a context, but I think it also, so blogging heads, as I understand it, seems to be mainly um, sort of for and by people who are, yeah, men and a bit older than us and also more sort of professionally, like people who have a kind of prestigious day job that they can kind of like go and do a podcast here and there, not worry you about. They get paid for. They yes. get paid. Yeah. And I think job. for for us, I think we were always a little bit of a weird fit, just because you know we are working writers who you know hope to earn money from our work and are not you know like just kind of finding money randomly in piles wherever. Um, but also, yeah, I think just in terms of like, for us, just timing, I think what happens now, and this is true um, in media generally, is you want to be able to respond to things pretty quickly. And blogging heads would sometimes just the logistics of it, you know, of organizing the recording, um, all of that could make it a little bit more difficult sometimes. Um, and yeah, I think, I think in terms of the makeup stuff, yeah, especially now, because there's just like not a whole lot of going outside anyway. Um, the only times I've put on makeup, I think, in this, in all of this have been like blogging heads. And once I had to do a headshot for the Globe and Mail, and they were like, asking me for a headshot, I was like, I don't have this. So I put on makeup and like, had my husband take my picture. <laughs> but there's also the cat, the, uh, the pet element, you mm-hmm. both have your, 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 Animals are featured prominently in your broadcast. So that's going to be a different, there's going to be a different dynamic. Well, we can always put pictures Audio online. Only. You know, I'm not oh. averse to putting like for a special tier, you get like the really good poodle shots. I mean, and do you both have poodles? I'm, I'm a little confused. I know, Phoebe, you have a poodle, but what's your dog cat? Or do you have more it's than a, one? It's a doodle. Dog? What's your dog cat? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you have cats. Yeah, I have Rasputin the cat who who is going to be very sad to lose his opportunity to appear on Zoom. He really likes to uh, jump up on the table and put his butthole in the camera. It's just, you know, real crowd pleaser. It's an it's, it's, it's understandable instinct in this era. Yeah. I mean, I would like to do the same. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm just a little bit too restrained. Um, but yeah. Let us, that's why we have to move <laughs> yeah. off the platform. That's sexism, the misogyny. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I have a, a, a doodle. But you could actually hear our... Um, you can hear our dogs in the background of our audio podcast pretty frequently. Yeah. You know, we, we mm-hmm. clip out most of the barking, but every so often it makes for a, you know, a good kind of punctuation mark. So, yeah. Okay. Well, on this uh, thread of blogging heads being a pretty male-dominated space, I, I really want to talk about what I've noticed a lot over the last couple of years, sort of as more and more people are coming forward from the left to critique the left and kind of make, you know, certain cases for free speech that either haven't been made in the past or didn't really need to be made as much. Um, it does seem to be, there do seem to be more men in this space than women. And I have a couple of theories as to why, but I'm curious uh, what you've thought about this um if you've thought about it at all if you have any any theories why why there are so few women like you know there's is this realm of the intellectual dark web um i i hate that term and i have various thoughts about even w- the, the legitimacy of that space and 
how useful it is. Um, I, I admire a lot of people in it and I'm a little perplexed by others, but, you know, certainly there are not very many women in that space. Um, and even the sort of adjacent realms don't have as many. So is that something that you care to address? Why are there so few of us, I guess, is what I'm asking. We actually talked about this recently on the podcast. Um, Phoebe, do you want to do you want to tackle it first? And sure, yeah. I mean, I think part of it has to do not with actually. So there are a couple reasons. I think one is that there actually are quite a few women, but for I'm just going to be boring and say because sexism, men get cited by people who mm-hmm. like this space and who don't like it. And, you know, I've often seen like some list of all the people who have such and such view and think like either that I or women I know um, totally fit that, but like only the men are being listed because they speak with that deep voice of authority. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I think there is some just sort of like, like with any other not sort of, unless the sphere is like, you know, makeup blogging, it is just going to be kind of like the male voices get heard a bit more. But I do also think that there's just um, the thing where I don't think there are as many. And I think this is what Kat and I discussed on our podcast was that just have being kind of like somebody who like doesn't care and just spouts opinions is just like a less common thing among women, not necessarily that women Mm -hmm. aren't so inclined, but it's just kind of, I don't know, maybe socialized out of us, maybe there's some evolutionary psychology explanation for it, you know, of who wants to write an op-ed and who doesn't, maybe it's built Mm -hmm. into the very DNA. I don't, my guess would be no, but yeah, but there are a lot of women though. I think it like, obviously Barry Weiss would be the obvious, um, really famous example, but like, I would say of the people I follow on Twitter and so forth who have kind of, you know, different or contrarian type views um, because of my own biases, probably more women. But when you think about, so like the Harper's letter is a good example. I think all three of us signed the Harper's letter. Do we know um, what the gender yes. breakdown of that was out of curiosity? Yeah. You know what? I, that would, I can't believe nobody's, um, <laughs> nobody's looked into that. I, I would guess it's, I, I mean, it was so carefully curated and they thought so, they thought a lot about who they asked and who was on it. So I'm, I can't imagine it would be that, lopsided but certainly the organizers were were men and the people who are most closely associated with it are men other than jk rowling mm-hmm. you know so. i have one thought too which is um you know sort of to add on to what phoebe was saying um i think that women you know whether or they're like less inclined to be iconoclastic i think that we pay a steeper price for yes, doing it yes yes thank you for saying this cat that is I, that uh, is a very good point you know yeah. that there is this you know it's not just that that you're socialized to you know to kind of go along and get along and to you know to be um you know a people pleaser but i mean when you think about somebody like somebody like Barry Weiss as compared with you know her sort of male Brett Stevens, maybe right when you think about like although he was already on the right though just in in fairness he he's not viewed as some kind of traitor but right. is and she is viewed as a traitor yes she's yeah, she's right. viewed as a gender traitor I think and yeah. you know because she's you know she's espousing views and she's espousing ideas that are you know I think to many people's minds inherently unfeminine but the thing that I was going to say is when you look like, if you say her name online. 
a horde of like right. insane haters who who like exist on the internet just to find somebody talking about Barry Weiss and do this will descend upon you and yep. start like screaming about how like she did something mean in college and like you know it, I mean the- I mean who among us though <laughs> like Barry well, Weiss all these people on the syndrome is real. Left. Do, do nothing but mean things in college. <laughs> yeah, I think no, I think Kat's totally right. And I think this actually does kind of converge with something we talk about a lot on the podcast, but like the whole thing of the supposed 53% of white women voting for Trump, the debunked stat um, about from 2016 that everybody kind of based all of their hot takes on and kind of continues to this idea that whoever, like any white women doing something annoying or you know disfavored um by the speaker it's like worse than if white men have done it because as if there is some kind of default status of any woman that is just like sort of pure progressive perfect correct views on everything um it's yes yeah, the whole like being put on a pedestal yeah. so you have much further to fall exactly well and denying people their complications so yeah women are not allowed to be um any sort of mix of anything. It's just right. got to be like, you're good or you're bad. And I, I do think, I, I I totally agree that there are social penalties to be paid for speaking out in this way or even just kind of voicing your own confusion. And, you know, one of my theories is that women are in the aggregate, not all of us, but um, we tend to be more sensitive to in-group, out-group dynamics. So when you're going to be like criticized by your own side or from within your own tribe, I just think that women are perhaps predisposed to disliking that <laughs> maybe, maybe more than men. And I think that, you know, I, people like us may be outliers in that way. I kind of, it's funny, I tend to sort of court controversy in my writing and in my professional life, but then in my personal life and my actual like in-person day-to-day interactions, I, I avoid confrontation. I always try to be really nice and smoothing things over, but I, I wonder if there's just something about, um, what tends to be women's temperaments. I actually talked about this with Heather Hying, who was my very first guest on this podcast. She's an evolutionary biologist. She's married to Brett Weinstein, who's, you know, become, they've become both very prominent figures in this IDW space. Eric Weinstein is Brett's brother. He's the one who actually coined the term intellectual dark web, and I'm dying to get him on the podcast. I'm a big admirer of his, but I also wonder, like, if he really meant (laughs) for that term to become the runaway train that it has. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Heather, you know, we were sort of, you know, noticing that just women tend to be more careful with their words and less inclined to kind of disrupt any given conversation and say like, Hey, 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 that's not really right. Or what are you saying? And, you know, like, oh. just let's just like move on with the conversation. And that kind of, you know, you, you do that throughout your life and you end up not necessarily kicking up a lot of dust. Oh yeah. I think that, so I think this is where I'm going to be the like, um, so Kat and I ages ago discussed the book woke baby, and whenever I'm the more sort of PC That's a children's one, book. Yes, it is a children's book. It is a children's book. It's a fine line. It's one of those like baby books board now. books that's, you know, anyway. And it's real. It's real. It's out there. It's not, an, it's not a parody. It is real. Oh, it's entirely real. Um, because in the middle of like, so I had a baby um, who's now just turned two. Uh, so in the middle of like, or I guess fairly soon after we started our podcast. 
mm-hmm. actually. So we were kind of like discussing woke baby. But anyway, whenever I'm the more PC one on the podcast, I refer to myself as being woke baby. And I think my woke baby quality that I'm going to mention now is that I do think mansplaining is real. However, where I split from the kind of pure woke baby on this is I think men do it to one another plenty. I don't think it's specifically about something men do to women, but I think there's like this mode of discourse, what rhetoric, whatever, where men just like (laughs) believe themselves to be correct and don't kind of doubt themselves at all and just don't care about the context and just kind of go for it that I just think is much more common among men. Yeah. So I think that may be playing into this. Do you agree, Kat? I mean, I agree that mansplaining is real and that, you know, condescension um, and, you know, arrogance is real. Um, my my thing with mansplaining is that at this point, it, the, the term, which was useful, you know, back when Rebecca Solnit um, I guess it coined, or I don't know if she coined it or she wrote, just wrote the essay that kind of spawned it, um, about. Did she actually coin the term? I don't think yeah, she did. I'm not sure. I, I tried to corner her. Yeah. That, yeah right? right. I know. So she, but she wrote this great essay about being at a party and like, you know, being introduced to a guy who found out what kind of stuff she wrote about. And he started explaining that like, she should really read this, this book that he'd recently heard of yes. that was her book. About Edward Moybridge. The, yes. It, oh, it wow. Was her you, book. you really yes. remember this essay. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. only remembered like the, you know, the big... too much about this stuff yet. <laughs> yeah so you know like that phenomenon obviously is something very specific and it is real and you know is a is a man more likely to overstep and make like that type of incredibly foolish error yeah probably um but at this point the just the term has become so bastardized like it's undergone this concept creep so now it's basically used to refer to a man saying something to a woman that she doesn't like that she didn't want to hear um you know even if even if it was actually useful information even if she was actually incorrect and you know and was spouting something inaccurate doesn't matter like if you intrude with any kind of explanation um you've you know you're splaining and it's bad so that's sort of where i you know when i think about mansplaining that's mostly what i think of that you know it was such a great word for 5 minutes and then people just Ooh, can know, I okay. guess and about mansplaining for like a second because I have okay. a thought I'm gonna want to explain about this <laughs> the which fact is, that you ask permission oh, to that's that's the worst I'm the worst but I guess the thing that's kind of rubbed me the wrong way about mansplaining as a topic is just like this it seems to assume a woman who is like the world expert who has published enough and it's like clear that she is you know a hundred percent in the right, which is just like not a very common everyday situation. And I think it like it just it makes feminism, it almost like makes the bar higher, paradoxically. Like if a man is being condescending to you, unless you can like whip out the book you wrote on the very topic, the very book, you know, if you've what if you haven't, you know, written any book or not any, you know, book on whatever you're talking about. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's a rambling thought about men. So like where where do you Guys, I'm, I just say you guys, by the way. I don't know if because I'm we from do New too. Jersey. I'm going to die on that hill. No, I, just I think we're all, it's a regional yeah. thing. It's a regional gender neutral term of address. It's like y'all, Thank but you. it's for people from, you know, above the Mason-Dixon line. I too will die on this hill. I yeah. will join you. 
I will join you guys on this hill. Okay. Where we this are will dead. be the you, the, the you guys edition. Also, remember the electric company? Did you watch it? Remember, yes. wasn't that the opening? Hey, you hey, guys. You guys. <laughs> and also the Goonies. Okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a, like a rich history. I, ha, has somebody written a dissertation on you guys? I, I smell it. I smell it in the works. Anyway, like, what do you think is the root cause of this sort of, I don't know if it was sudden, but it evolved pretty rapidly starting around, I guess, 2013, 14, 15 in social media and online spaces with this idea that women were suddenly a marginalized group. Like somehow we went from like women, girls can do anything, um, you know, pretty solid evidence that girls are doing better in school. Women are kind of surpassing men in a lot of ways. And suddenly the message online just became almost the polar opposite. Like, do you have any ideas like what the psychology has been behind this? I do. Um, I think the fact that Around that same time, victimhood became sort of a form of currency, at least in certain spaces, and particularly certain progressive online spaces. I think that has a lot to do with it. But why that? Okay, so where did that come from? Where did victimhood as currency come from? Yeah. Good question. Um, I I have not investigated this. I just observed it happening. Um, why, Why would that be the case? I think, okay, I have a theory about that. I think it has to do with meritocracy and I think it's kind of built into meritocracy that everybody. And so this is what I was writing about with like privilege, not in any specific type, but like in a meritocracy, you want to seem self-made. You want to refer to yourself as having had some kind of trajectory from nothing to the top. And everybody wants to show this. And I think this has just already been the case for ages, but I think what's happened is now there's kind of like a progressive spin on it where you have to kind of, whether you're on the left or the right, there's like, there are different versions of it. But I think that's kind of where it comes from. I think this is just the latest manifestation. And in terms of why women as victims, I think it's because that, and this gets back to like, you know, a classic topic for all of us, but like the absence of nuance. So it became impossible to talk about women being victims in certain contexts and not in all contexts. So that's how you end up with this discourse where women are either, you know, tragic and something Kat and I have discussed a lot in our podcast, this sort of myth that women will not go outside past dark without, you know, like a machete in their handbag, lest somebody pass them by in the street. But also, also this idea that like women are like, if there's an oppressor, it's a woman, it's Karen. Right. So it has to be one or the other. Right. I mean, Kat, you know, you're, you're a journalist and a cultural critic, but you've published two young adult novels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you've collaborated with the legendary Marvel Comics editor Stan Lee on a superhero novel. You've also been an advice columnist for at least two different publications. And I think one at one point was focusing mainly on teens. So yes. I'm curious, since you have a foot in the world of younger people, are there things that you notice or appreciate about them that maybe fall through the cracks when the rest of us are complaining about coddling and hypersensitivity and snowflakes and and all of that like are are there sort of nuances of um of of what it is to be a young person now that may be contributing to some of this discourse and some of these memes that we're maybe being too hard on like 
I mean, you know, the thing about young people is they're sort of the product of their environment and their upbringing and, you know, whatever, whatever we inflict on them as they're growing up, right? So, you know, if an 18-year-old goes to college and you know, starts demanding trigger warnings and class exemptions, you know, every time they have to like confront um, a piece of writing that they find uncomfortable or disagreeable, um, you know, whose fault is that, you know, that, that, that they came up believing that this was the best way to approach the world? Is it, is it really on them? Or is it on, you know, the culture that raised them or, you know, the parents who prevented them from stumbling and, you know, led them to believe that they, you know, don't actually have the resilience to fall and get back up. So, I mean, you know, to that extent, like, I try not to blame kids um, for, you know, basically being what they have been raised to be, um, you know, what society has told them they should be. At the same time, I did see over the course of the 10 years that I was writing this teen advice column at the um, the Spark Notes blog, that there was this shift in the way that kids thought about themselves as, you know, empowered or capable agents moving through the world. Um, that, you know, at the at the start, when I first started writing this, it was probably 2009. And um, there was, I think, a lot more, there's a lot more confidence. Um, you know, they, like, they were not afraid to, to be in the world, to interact with other people. They weren't necessarily afraid to make mistakes. You know, the notion that you could, uh, you know, approach somebody and be rejected wasn't like this, you know, all-consuming terror. It it was still a recognizable landscape to me from the one that I grew up in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was this shift around, you know, probably around 2014, where there was this sort of, this grasping at the idea of helplessness um, as I think, you know, probably what happened was just that, you know, kids are not idiots. Uh, you know, they are online, they can read the writing on the wall. And just as, you know, in various spaces, it became a sort of a, a clout making mechanism to declare that you had no power and you were helpless and you had been mistreated, um, you know, that they saw this happening and started to kind of, you know, lean towards that themselves. Um, but yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time in the latter half of, you know, the the 10 years that I was writing this column, trying to explain to kids that it was okay to make mistakes. It was okay to do things that you didn't feel bad about, that regret was useful, you know, that and that when you were unhappy, it didn't necessarily mean that somebody had done something to you, that there wasn't always a villain in the equation who had inflicted the situation on you that, you know, that you couldn't possibly survive. Yeah, that's kind of a radical idea. Were they open? Can I say my favorite of Kat's advice columns? Um, So, well, a lot are favorites, but one specifically that um, I noticed before, I I think this might have been like before we'd interacted, but where it was somebody had written in to talk about her relationship and whether it was okay or like a teenager had written in um, to say that 
her boyfriend, wasn't he, that he was like a cis white male working class, this, this, this. And she was like this number of identity categories. And it was as if like she was trying to, the letter writer was trying to like solve some kind of like chemistry equation involving all the different categories. And Kat responded like people are people. (laughs) And I found that very refreshing. And I think that is a lot of, I mean, I don't have as much experience with, um, the youth, as Kat does, I've taught undergrads who have not been particularly like this, although I think that may be changing since I haven't been teaching. I don't know. But um, but yeah, it just seems like that is, at least from online, really seems to be a, a new thing of like not just using identity categories to inform your understandings of the world a bit, but like as if these are hard and fast laws of like who has the power and who doesn't in a given situation and that you could like use some kind of like intersectionality calculator to like decide to win arguments or to decide who's in the right. And yeah, that's just not how actual human interactions work. Um, And I thought that Kat was very early in um, highlighting this. But Kat, did you find that people were receptive to your advice? Some were. Um, I mean, the people who wrote to me, I I think were, and I've gotten, I still occasionally get letters from kids who wrote to me who are now like in their 20s. Um, you know, I, I heard from one who just got engaged and it was, that was really heartwarming. And she was like, thank you, you know, for explaining that my bad breakup was, you know, not some kind of reflection on me as like a damaged person or whatever. Um, but there was, also a contingent of um, commenters who were college students who I think were sort of like really being immersed for the first time in like baby social justice activism. And they would always show up to, you know, to complain that I was asking too much by, you know, suggesting that kids, you know, try to be resilient, you know, to not take things personally. Um, not like cut their families off, you know, the first time that they you mm. know, came out as non-binary and, you know, and the parents didn't use the right pronouns immediately. Um, you know, there was this, you know, it was, it was an interesting combination of the kind of all or nothing, like scorched earth um, approach that is, I think, typical just of like being a teenager in general, in combination with these very strident progressive politics. Like I, I'm always amazed at the way personality traits have now been redefined as identity categories. Like it's not just something about you. Like if this, you know, the idea. Like I was when I when I first learned what demisexual means. You know, like <laughs> this was from an undergraduate. Are you, oh, are you familiar? Oh with my that god, term? I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with this. I think it's the funniest thing in the world. That if you need to get to know somebody before having sexual attraction to them that makes you inherently. Oh, so this, Oh boy. This is a sexual orientation and it makes you oppressed. It makes you queer. LGBTQ. Yes. Well, and it if was you, part of even the, if it's it only the opposite flag, sex people. Yeah. And I think, okay, so this is just, this is where I go. On and let's just for the audience. This is spelled D E M I sexual. I, at first I was like, is it you're attracted to Demi Moore? What Understandable. Is it? But um, yeah, it's just, oh, it's basically like if you are the the cliche of a straight woman. Now, I, I could totally tangent on why I don't think that the classic 
that, that the typical straight woman, whatever, is necessarily demisexual, whatever. But if you are like supposedly most straight women are, then you are suddenly this like snowflake identity that does not make any sense. And I think, I think there's just this like weird tension um, kind of in progressive circles between like, you don't want to, you don't want to be Rachel Dolezal. You don't want to be one of these people where a medium post outs you as fake. However, whatever you can sort of like cling to and like highlight about yourself that makes you different if it's, if it couldn't be debunked, but, but the whole demisexual thing, it just, to me, this seems like to be taking something very meaningful away from people who are actually oppressed for um, who they are or who they love. And the idea that if you are a straight person who does not immediately want to hop into bed with someone that you are oppressed by, (laughs) And, and therefore, it's basically the, the same. It's basically right, like being gay. You know, it's like, yes. no, it's not anything like <laughs> no, being no. gay. It's just, you know, it's this whole, I, I think it's also that, like, it would be fine, like, in the abstract, to some extent, I think it would be fine if there's just an ever larger vocabulary to describe human difference. I think it's always going to be elusive because I think individuals always are individual and you're never going to be able to, like, sum anybody up even with infinite identity identity markers but like this idea that if you have an identity it is oppressed or maybe it's oppressor it just it's how you end up with something bonkers like demisexual as oppressed and then it becomes not even just that like some people might think this but then if you don't think something like this you know that's that's basically a violence and all of that yeah that was something that i did observe um you know that I think it used to be in some ways reassuring to hear that what you were going through was normal. And what I did find, um, one of the, one of the advice columns that I wrote that got like a big negative reaction from, you know, this particular contingent of kids online was about demisexuality. And I said, you know, that you don't need to come out as demisexual. You don't need to come out to your parents as demisexual. You don't need to act like this is, you know, like this is an oppressed category um, because it's completely normal to feel like you would rather form an emotional connection with somebody before you're interested in hopping into bed with them. And when I said this is normal, what kids heard in many cases was you're not special. And <laughs> it's and also was, for the record normal not to be a, a demisexual. That's also okay. It's all Yeah, we normal. don't we don't want to get letters from the um, <laughs> the anti- Demisexual, anti-defamation. A D A D L. But yeah, when I uh, learned what demisexual meant, it was this really sort of layered and profound moment because it was explained to me by a young woman who was an undergraduate, college undergraduate, and she was talking about uh, how she had come out to her mother as demisexual. And the mother, who was probably, you know, like my age, uh, said something like, oh, well, honey, that's you're just a girl. You know, that's that's what that's what all girls feel or, you know, a lot of girls just they don't you know, they're not naturally inclined to just, you know, jump in bed with anybody. And she was very offended by this. But the other interesting thing about this young woman, she was I didn't know her that well, but to the extent that I did know her, I found her incredibly bright, really interesting. Um, and she was on the spectrum. She was on the autism spectrum, um, extremely high functioning, um, not something that would be like, 
you know, something you would recognize right away, but she also identified as on the spectrum. And I'm actually like brewing up a number of kind of crackpot at this point theories about the sort of the, the, the overlap between a lot of these, this preoccupation with identity categories and a kind of um, inability to hear nuance and distinctions and the prevalence of, or just the, the greater recognition of people on the autism spectrum or wanting to identify yourself as such. I think that there is like something going on in terms of people being unable to sort of process themselves as somebody who contains multitudes. And I wonder if it has to do with greater recognition of autism. So I, I'm completely just, I threw that out of a million left left of left field, but do you have any thoughts? I have <laughs> never I, thought about this. Mind. So <laughs> Kat, have you ever thought about this? You know, not too much. What, I, what I've seen talked about is that, you know, sort of in line with this obsession with like self-categorization that you also see um, a disproportionate number of girls who identify as, as trans and want to transition to being boys. Well, yes, um, that's, that, yes. That there's, there's a huge overlap. An yes. overrepresentation of um, autism spectrum, do you call them disorders or, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to stigmatize, you know, with my language, something that shouldn't be. Um, but yeah, you know, that, that, that uh, is. Neuro, neuro diver- the, I mean, the neurodiversity community um, yeah, is yeah. very prominent on Twitter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I've, I've heard this discussed. I think it's an interesting idea that I hope somebody researches. It's also, it strikes me as such a hot potato that I do not want to yeah. just like sit not here me. running at the mouth about it without additional knowledge. So. Yeah, I, I don't have, and again, I'm not saying that if, if falling into, it, you know, I'm not saying that if you're demisexual, you're autistic. Obviously, I'm not saying that. Uh, if anything, but, you're kind of normie if you're demisexual, I would have thought. That's well, except it seems like if you call that. it demisexual, uh, you're like a basic. Or is it kind of basic? Or is it kind of basic bitch <laughs> to be demisexual? I don't um, know. It feels like if you're a woman who buys into the kind of rom com narrative of, of he had to pursue me and then I only, you know, which has never been me. I've always thought I'm the weirdo because that's not me at all. I've never been like that as the poor boys of my high school could attest. But yeah, I don't know. I always thought that, that the people now who are demisexual were the, were the normies, but who knows. But a demisexual does have a little whiff of put a ring on it. You know, maybe. Well, are there male demisexuals? Like, are there straight men specifically, or gay men? Actually, now I'm curious who are identifying as um, demisexuals. I have seen. I have seen that online. Okay. Well, everything is. (laughs) I feel like there's everything somewhere online. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, but okay, but you know, to this, Phoebe, you wrote um, a piece in Arc Digital last spring about a spate of articles and memes suggesting that women were enjoying social distancing because it gave them a break from men somehow. Oh, right. So yeah. Oh, you, boy. That feels like wrote, from 100 years ago in I pandemic know, times. But, but yes, I remember but, this. Yeah. And you wrote uh, that most that most women actually like men, as in are attracted to men, is a fact conveniently forgotten or treated as an unusual and fraught inclination. I, I feel like you've become a bit of a champion lately of straight women, Oh, um, absolutely. Yes. This is work. my, this is my pet topic. Um, so I, before that I wrote actually for the Globe and Mail, um, like a, a much longer piece also about, about, um, the whole sort of what I call ban men feminism 
and yes. why that's a problem. Basically, it should be obvious that most women, whether demisexual or whatever, most women, including many women who like women, like men. And I don't mean like men in some sort of men's rights activist way. I don't mean in something to do with feminism. I mean, are attracted to men. And I think that this sort of ironic man-hating of the internet and just this general, like the sort of post-MeToo cultural moment of women need a safe space away from men seems to just, it ignores the very, to me, obvious thing of like most women would prefer if they go sit in a coffee shop and over at the next table is a pleasant looking man to gaze at here and there, you know, like between paragraphs, like, is that odd? And I think something I've been trying to figure out. Yeah, I think that's an identity category specifically, specific to the coffee. <laughs> I think so. Um, Very caffeinosexual, definitely. Yeah, or sexual. Oh my god, Kat! Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Kat always finds the the perfect the perfect um, title or <laughs> concept or something. Portmanteau. Yes, this is, this is my one yes. talent. <laughs> one of many but but it is really like it's amazing how cat always figures this out but yeah i guess it just seems like the fact that women like men just needs to be something that feminism accepts and works with and doesn't try to like will into um non-existence it just seems like a, a losing strategy and it's just, it's so, and I guess it's unhinged from reality. And I also, my own feminism is very much rooted in women as gazers also, you know, not, not gazed at, but like women are looking to kind of thing. Yeah. Kat, do you have anything to add on to that? Um, I mean, Phoebe writes about this stuff brilliantly and is sort of the expert on it. Um, what I think is, is interesting is that she's identified um, almost like the next wave of the cool girl phenomenon where, you know, it used to be like, I'm not like other girls. Um, and, you know, and that, and it, you were supposed to talk about this and like this sort of to establish that you're, you were like raunchy, you know, you were kind of like a guy's girl. Like it was distancing yeah. yourself from the feminine basically, um, or the, um, you know, stereotypically feminine. And then, um, you know, as, as you guys were talking about, like way back at the beginning of this conversation, it evolved toward, you know, um, instead of being like, I'm not like other girls, it was, I'm not like other girls because I'm not interested in men or I find men gross. Um, you know, I'm ashamed of my, like, straight womanhood that I am like interested in spite of myself and these gross, horrible, trashy men, you know, who don't deserve women who are amazing. So I feel like there's this sort of um, like the, the feminism and the way women are expected to sort of posture in society is almost on this journey. Um, and yeah, and I think Phoebe basically is like, you know, sort of a very keen observer of how these dynamics continue to evolve. I mean, it's just because of like, it's for totally self-interested reasons and, you know, yeah. But I do think what there is how, political. How, sorry? I mean, you know, on the How, how side, self-interested how? Well, I was going to say, you know, the, to a man. The, okay. more that, you know, the more that women posture about, um, you know, hating men and thinking they're trash, the more men there are for the rest of us, right? Like, it's a buffet. I'm just kidding. We have a lot <laughs> of, you know, I'm just saying we live in Canada. There's a lot of snow to shovel, you know. 
<laughs> but I, I, I wonder like if this is a self-fulfilling prophecy because like if you go if if trashing men just becomes a kind of um like just expected kind of part of the discourse or just way of speaking do men just like kind of over time subtly and slowly become trash i mean i i sometimes think that we're we're setting up them up for failure. Oh, we're almost it's, daring it's, them to do it. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's kind of like that thing on Twitter where people say, you know, there, there will be like some righteous, you know, feminist journalist on Twitter say like, oh, you know, say something terrible about men and then men will come after her saying terrible things and call, you know, being very misogynist and she'll say, see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I wonder, like, the, is are, is this some sort of macro version of that maneuver? Like, if you just beat up on men all day, they'll either give up um, or they'll just, like, become – they'll go to Reddit and become um, – Enjoy the manosphere. Well, I, think, I think the more sort of um, fragile men may react, but I think most men just kind of tune it out and – sort of assume it's kind of women getting together and having a little rant and aren't really like that bothered about it. Like, I don't think yeah. that. Or they join in and they become cool guys. Oh, but that. Oh, and, then, and then, oh, we've both written about this, right, Kat? Like the men who say they're yeah. this and yeah. The performative, the, the male anti-man, the male misandrist, um, you know, who kind of like peacocks for for man-hating feminism himself as some kind of strategic self-aggrandizing tool. <laughs> that sounds hot. Um, okay, but this is like the thing ultimately that I always come back to and I want to, I really want to know what you think about this. Do you ever, like critiquing the culture effectively now just means critiquing social media, right? So like we're talking about women always got together at their book clubs or their wine clubs or whatever and complained about their lives. And one of those complaints may have had may have to do with the men in their lives. And that's just a normal part of being human in the world. And now that has just been taken online and at once flattened and amplified. And so it just has a completely different dynamic and it just seems so it's just like it's it's such a false consciousness but it's also the dominant one it is i mean i think women have always complained about men and men have complained about women because you know most men are with or want to be with women and you know vice versa but i think that this idea that a better world would be one and so this is something i've written about there's a baroness von sketch this comedian uh these comedians in canada's uh comedy sketch show where they um it's like about a future of with no men but then the women have it gets revealed throughout the sketch have all actually hidden their boyfriends or husbands um from the apocalypse (laughs) and it's actually pretty funny but yeah i think this idea that like you have to take it to its logical conclusion you have to really like not want to be around men and also just where this comes up in a more everyday sense rather than like in an absurd comedy sketch really is this idea that women prefer to be in physical spaces if they can be confident that there won't be men in them and to me this just seems so removed from um i mean i'm not obviously like going basically anywhere these days except um daycare drop off and pick up but back in the like normal youngish human days yeah i would prefer if i went to a party and there were 
no men, I wouldn't be like, oh, what a relief. <laughs> there aren't many. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, and I think where I see a lot of the sort of um, what I perceive to be, although I'm a little biased, hypocrisy is when this is like, this is really dating me because I don't think people would talk like this anymore for a variety of reasons. But when you would hear straight women say, oh, I prefer to go dance um, at a gay bar because, you know, like, yuck, I don't want to see men. When I suspect that these were women who wanted to just kind of look at men a bit themselves. Hmm. That's Pat, an interesting point. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of um, captivated by the image of a bunch of, you know, very attractive, but uninterested men sort of dancing, putting on a show for their, uh, for, for this crowd of women who've <laughs> arrived just to gawk at Isn't them. Isn't that like a male strip? That's like what the Chippendales dancers were. Yes, they? We're just they, doing it. Well, then this actually, strippers. this is a whole discourse though. Like, are, is it okay for straight women to go to a gay bar to look at men? And I guess like there are a lot of hot takes over the years about this very topic. Yeah. So I think the thing about, you know, Megan, when you talk about the, you know, comment, commenting on the culture means commenting on social media, you know, that's true. But at the same time, social media is still, it both is and isn't real life, um, especially when you talk about a place like Twitter, where the, you know, the discourse is dominated by this very, you know, small category of people, you have a lot of you have a lot of journalists on Twitter. You have a lot of media people on Twitter. You have a lot of highly educated, you know, white urban information economy workers dominating the conversation on Twitter. And so it looks like the conversation at large is a certain way, but not everybody is on Twitter. Um, I mean, you know, most of the most of the country is not on Twitter, and I think that you know, in real life, um, you know, if you go into spaces not dominated by the kind of people who spend all day, you know, tweeting about how much men suck, um, you find that there is, you know, either a more nuanced approach or just a different approach. You know, if, if I'm online all day, I'll see people trashing men as a class because, ugh, they're all like, you know, school shooters in the making and probably rapists and, you know, and men are just the worst at large as a category. If I, you know, if I get offline and go out to lunch when back when lunch was still a thing with, you know, some of my female friends who are married, you know, we might complain about sort of more specific annoyances of domestic life. Um, you know, there's always a conversation about how somebody's husband can't find a pot in the kitchen, even though it's right in front of him. And he like calls you from inside the house to ask you where the thing is that he should be able to find because it's right at his fingertips. That phenomenon, you know, you might talk about that, but nobody is literally trashing men as an entire category. Um, and I think that that, you know, that's the kind of thing that's reserved for like when somebody has gone through a terrible breakup and suddenly it's, oh, you know, men in general are the worst, but that's not the default mode of conversation for most people. So, you know, there's an interesting question of when we talk about the online culture, are we actually giving it more attention than it deserves? Are we succumbing to the, you know, temptation to silo ourselves and to imagine that what we see in our echo chamber online is actually the world at large? But, but is it now? Because that's where people live. I guess that's what I'm sort of torn on now, because I think you don't want to, like, look at online as, you know, 
everything, but what if like how much of the day are we all spending online? You know, what the the other thing was already kind of, you know, in retreat and now until like there's a vaccine and like it's truly over over people are just spending so so much of their time online. Also, you know, what kind of spaces are they in? I think is the question, you know, mm -hmm. like if you go on Facebook, the conversation is very different from what it is on like, you know, blue check media, Twitter. And if you go on, I don't know what other, what other communities are there? The comments of a knitting blog. It's probably Instagram has not has zero interest in banning men. It's not about that at all. The poodles are for the most part, not to be hemisphere biased, are mostly frolicking in snow these days. Oh, I'm surprised. How come there haven't been any um, like toxic, uh, you know, sort of in- intramural dramas around dog communities? Because I follow a couple of uh, dog. Oh God, there um, are. Have really? You I was going to say that it's too. It, the ones I follow are just way too international. So that I follow a lot of uh, accounts of dogs that look exactly like my dog, and they live like either in Scandinavia, Japan, sometimes China. There's just not enough like cultural common ground i think so what you guys need to to do or maybe you don't want to do this i wouldn't actually wish this on anybody is um investigate the pitbull discourse oh well that's a whole that's <laughs> like so, that's very social justice it is um and yeah. maybe maybe that's the lesson here is that once contingent of social justice enthusiasts have invaded your community, or I shouldn't say invaded, have made their way into your community and have determined to steer the conversation in a particular direction, things can get very contentious. Right. But I mean, to to this idea that Twitter is not real, it definitely is not. But the problem is that it is influencing big institutions. It influences publishing. I mean, we can, you know, say it's not real to bash men all day, but the fact is that we see book after book being published that are right along those lines. Like it's it is coming out into the culture at large. That's and absolutely so true. I I guess like, you know, by way of sort of winding down this this conversation, although I feel like I could go on for hours, like, you know, we are media professionals. We've been in this business for, you know, a decade, couple decades, I think it's safe to say. Um, at least I have. Like, are you worried about how the the sort of you know the the rules and and protocol of Twitter have just become the the rules and protocol of of professional um, creative and and journalistic life? Like, how do you sort of like get through the day um, with these conditions? Either of you. <laughs> I don't know. Kat, do you want to start? How do you um, get through the day? I mean, are you worried about, I guess that's a little bit of a, how does anybody get through the day? But I, by, by, by looking at Twitter. <laughs> if you have right, answers, but, I would, I would but, like I, but I mean, it's like how, like, are you worried about uh, your careers? Well, okay. Okay. I can answer this actually. And I think this kind of gets at something that's been like floating around. I know that Kat and I have been um, sort of in and out of various conversations about this guess where on Twitter lately, but this idea of there being the people who are, you know, negatively impacted by sort of speaking out in unpopular ways and the people who, who benefit in one way or another from doing so. And I think all of us to some degree, I think we've, we've, I'm just going to throw it out there and we can all, you know, speak for ourselves too, but I think we're all a bit in both. Like, I think 
I benefit from and like have a career um, as much as I do from, you know, saying things that aren't exactly what everybody else is saying. But at the same time, like, I am still somebody who will occasionally get the direct message of like, how dare you like that tweet by that person? Don't you know their capital B bad, you know? Like, I don't think there's any real, um, unless you're really huge, I don't know if there's like fully escaping it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to yes and you, Phoebe. Um, you know, Sounds good. <laughs> I, I am worried about the ideological capture of our co- cultural institutions, of education, you know, and even to a certain extent of like corporate institutions, corporate messaging. Oh, for sure. By, the HR you know, departments have been yeah, completely captured. By this, you know, ultimately pretty fringe pretty intolerant um, mode of thinking and communication. And, you know, um, as Phoebe was saying, there are benefits, of course, you know, to, you know, to participating in the culture discourse, to, you know, being kind of on the front lines of the culture wars, as it were. At the same time, I mean, you know, as, as we've, you know, mentioned earlier, like I started out, as a young adult fiction author and as uh, also an entertainment journalist. And I don't publish YA anymore. And that has a lot to do with the fact that I was ostracized from that community for, you know, for being resistant to this type of rhetoric, you know, for, for, you know, even trying to push back against it a tiny, tiny bit. So, you know, I was really, really lucky that I had a lot of irons in the fire and I was able to, you know, to land in a slightly different space, as we say, um, and that I'm still working and that it's actually been to my benefit to, you know, that I, that I took the risk of speaking out back when it wasn't a sure thing that it wasn't going to cause, you know, life ruining consequences for me. So, yeah, you know, I feel I feel torn about it, you know, for every person who manages to recover and to pivot to talking about this stuff in a nuanced way that I think people are hungry for. There's somebody whose life gets ruined, you know, who suffers like a professional and social death because they were willing to, you know, speak out against this sort of orthodoxy that a lot of people, I would say probably even a majority don't agree with. That is another thing about like, what do people actually think versus, so that's another thing that just even beyond ideology, this is something that I'm kind of fascinated with online. Like, I mean, I always return to the example of like tipping discourse, where if you're talking about tipping online, everybody claims they tip 30% on a muffin. And you just know that that's not true. Having like, you know, even if you haven't worked in a coffee shop, which I did briefly once, but even whatever, obviously that's not true. I feel like there's just something that really gets at this like difference between how people present themselves online and what they're willing to admit to and what they're not. And I think that's sort of unresolvable a little. So do you guys think that this is going to correct at all? Like, do you, I mean, I I just keep saying like, it can't get worse. It can't get worse, but then it (laughs) consistently does. Um, I mean, where do you see this in like three years, five years? Like, how do you do you imagine any of this sort of settling down? Well, I mean, we've been through a wave of kind of intense political correctness before. Um, I was without just, social media, though. Right. Minus so what, that. what this is what I'm wondering is, you know, I was just old enough to be 
aware of that. I think I, um, I graduated from high school in 1999 and I, um, I think that, you know, I was coming into college at, at a moment when like that bubble had kind of popped and people were just, you know, grateful to relax again. Um, and then, you know, obviously starting in maybe 2010, there started to be this new resurgence of it. And I think, you know, I think that this stuff is always a gate swinging back and forth. Um, maybe that's just hopeful on my part. Um, but I would expect to see, you know, things begin to move in the other direction, especially now that we have a normal president um, who people don't feel the need to react to all the time. Like maybe life will become a little bit depoliticized. Maybe people will kind of unclench a little bit and we can have another period of relative peace and equanimity. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I worry about it. I think that maybe people just be so happy to be offline again and seeing one another in person once that's possible, that maybe that would calm down some of the, like, it'll leave the very online, online and arguing with one another. But, you know, I think a lot of people are just going to be so like, I, it's to speak for myself, I just like, I think of anything you know, I'm one of the people who thinks of like anything I ever kind of like any social thing I brushed off, like, ah, oh, too tired, don't feel like it. Like, what was I doing? You can, you know, remember being in person with people. <laughs> so I think I will, I personally expect to be more offline when such a thing is possible. Well, hopefully people will not be so offline that they stop listening to podcasts. Except, and, yes, um, for podcasts. Please stay <laughs> online to listen to podcasts. So Kat Rosenfield and Phoebe Maltzbovey, thank you so much. Can you tell us where we can find your the new uh, iteration of Feminine Chaos? Um, Feminine Chaos is going to uh, live from now on on Acast, uh, which is where we'll post our public episodes. And basically any place that you get podcasts, you should be able to subscribe on Acast and get your RSS feed to put it into your preferred podcast player. We're also going to be continuing to release um, exclusive content on our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash feminine chaos. We have multiple levels at which you can subscribe and we would appreciate your support. Yes. Kat said it very well. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for this conversation. Thank you. It was so fun so because much. I love, yeah, thank you. Um, this is great. great. I love, uh, I, I never, I don't think I've ever missed an episode. So this is like, it's like getting to walk into my favorite TV show or something. Oh. <laughs> something like that. Um, anyway. An excellent compliment. Okay. Well, thank you so much and uh, good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey and Kat Rosenfield. They are the hosts of the podcast Feminine Chaos which you can find on Acast and just about anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support them at patreon.com slash feminine chaos. While you're there, you can also support this podcast at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can also subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a rating and or a review, ideally favorable. For more information about the show, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. I hope you will tune in next week. I will announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover, and so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.